Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Evan Ratliff, Max Linsky. Hey, you guys. The original cast of the show. Aaron, who did you talk to this week for uh, the show? The person I talked to this week in the show, I've seen uh, her the galley for her book on the New York City subways more than any other galley this season. So publishing forecasters out there, I, uh, I smell a hit. <laughs> galley uh, spotter, yeah, Aaron ga- Lammer. Yeah, yeah. check Follow my Twitter feed, The Galley Spotter. Um, it's Casey Sepp. Her book is called Furious Hours. Uh, it is a dual narrative about uh, a book that Harper Lee tried to write, may have written, did not publish, uh, about a true crime uh, incident in Alabama involving a reverend whose family members uh, died mysteriously after he took out large insurance policies on them. Um, It's a really interesting book. I really like books in this structure. I'm kind of a sucker for the double narrative, and this one is done in a different way than I've ever um, heard it. And also, the hook is just incredible, and it's an incredible book. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm a sucker for Casey Sepp. I'm glad she's on the show. I've been waiting for this one. Um, If you've got a great hook some dual narrative ideas they all can fit in a uh, a newsletter oh yeah from uh, from mailchimp uh they make it so easy to start an email newsletter that whatever your project is they're a great fit thanks to mailchimp and now here's aaron with casey sepp Welcome, Casey Sapp. Thanks so much for having me. It's nice to be here. I feel like I've like been immersed in the world of your book for like the last six hours, and like I can almost feel the sort of like southern swampy steaminess <laughs> like pouring off me. I also rode a bike here, so I'm probably just sweaty. Um, <laughs> but um, well, hopefully, some of the Manhattan portions of Harper oh, Lee's life just yeah. felt familiar and maybe surprising. But, I was. I, yeah. I have to admit, I don't know how I didn't internalize the information that she had spent a lot of her life in Manhattan. Maybe it's like just like. There's something about like the authors that I knew about when I was in like elementary school where they need to be very like one dimensional in my sure. mind. Um, sure. C.S. Lewis is another one. I have like a very clear picture of him. He never left the library at Oxford <laughs> or Cambridge. He's just trapped there forever. And Harper Lee is in a small town in Alabama, never got out. Uh, but that's a good place to start. Like, where does your interest in Harper Lee start? Childhood. I mean, it sounds like um, maybe the same for you. So I, I loved To Kill a Mockingbird as a kid. And um, I don't so much look like her today, but as a kid, I looked a lot like Mary Batham, the woman who played Scout in the film adaptation. And I loved the novel when I read it. And I was a total tomboy nerd. And um, my father wasn't a lawyer, but I was a daddy's girl. And the kind of familial dynamics of that novel were really appealing to me. And 
you know, it sat with me the way that books do when you're a kid. I just loved it and returned to it. And I had always wanted to see Monroeville, the town where Harper Lee was born and raised. And I knew it was the model for Maycomb, the town in the novel. And I'd never made it. I'd done a couple southern road trips and always wanted to go to that part of Alabama, but it hadn't been. And so when Go Set a Watchman was announced, I went down there to look into that manuscript. And there were a lot of questions about the provenance of the manuscript and whether or not Harper Lee wanted it published. And so I um, went off, you know, there's kind of a scrum of reporters who went down there. But um, I went, you know, assuming even if I didn't find a story that it would just be nice to get to see the town that was the model for Maycomb. It's kind of a theme, actually, in the book, like um, flocks of reporters descending yeah. on a small town. Yeah, um, totally. It's like a rite of passage. If you were a Southern reporter, you had to go and try and get Harper Lee to talk. Like she became a kind of Boo Radley figure for the press, you know, try and get her to come out of the house and tell you her darkest secrets. What's the modern scrum like? Like I have a like an idea and sort of in the movie, like the 1970s, like <laughs> journalism scrum, but like... Um, you know, in the age of uh, mass communications or whatever, like, why do so many people feel the need to physically go? And then also, like, what happens to a story like that where you're trying to get it while nine other people are, like, pacing outside yeah, the same room as you? Yeah, sure. It's an interesting question, although in the case of Harper Lee, I mean, what happens is you go and... um I felt like I knew from small towns. I grew up in one, and I'm kind of a creature of them. But you go, and you really just realize what an extraordinary thing it is that she and Truman Capote both spent so much time in this tiny town as children. So she was born and raised there, but he had um, some family who lived right next door to the Lilies, and he spent quite a few years of his childhood and then returned for many summers as a young adult there. And you go, and... Um, it's just remarkable that this place produced two writers as extraordinary and as extraordinarily different as those two. And so I, I think it's important, you know, even in a kind of digital era where you could email or call anybody there to go and, you know, walk around the courthouse and walk around the courthouse square and walk down South Alabama Avenue. And, you know, one of the real joys of writing a book as opposed to a article or um, a feature is... I really just got to go and stay a lot. And I, you know, got to see what Monroeville was like in February and in March and in April and in June. And, you know, what's it like to spend a Christmas in Alabama and those that kind of passage of time in a particular place. And I think the book hopefully reflects the kind of deep knowledge that comes from sitting through the seasons. And, um, you know, that's not to say that you can't report from afar. And obviously a lot of good journalism comes from archival work and you don't necessarily need to be in the place to do that. You can send a proxy. And, you know, a lot of my book was built from autopsies and court records that, you know, some of which got mailed to me in Maryland. And I just, you know, gleefully opened the post box one day. <laughs> um, not all of them, you know, some of them really did come from, you know, going through courthouse records myself and tracking down people who had maintained copies. But yeah, I really, when I can, like to go and sit in a place and take my time with a story. And I just felt so lucky with the book to really get to do that kind of omnipotent directionally what um, of that experience like actually makes its way into the book because the book is set um, for people who have not read the book go read the book pause it come right back uh, <laughs> <laughs> take, you know, 11 hours for the Spo audio book or take a day the yeah. reverend maxwell doesn't make it um yeah thanks thanks <laughs> yeah you, you want to throw a few more out for purposes of the conversation but um 
the book takes place uh the murders are in the early 70s in those trials mm-hmm. and the story of harper lee of course like predates that and then extends almost to the present day mm-hmm. um knowing that you have this book that's taking place both in multiple places in time and there's two small southern towns the sound yeah. town that harper lee is from and the town uh where this trial and these murders took place um what 2018 or i'm guessing this book took multiple years 2016 2017 experiences fueled like what actually came about about this historical story yeah it's a great question and i should say um this true crime story took place in the 70s but i try the patience of the reader by starting in the 1920s when um the reverend maxwell kind of the first main character was born i think there's a little stuff about the life insurance industry that that goes yeah yeah so what i was about to say is i take it back to the roman empire and (laughs) you know really there's there's a lot of kind of archaeological excavation of time and history but um Uh, as a side note i would read an entire book that was a history of the life insurance industry someone should that. write it like yeah. it's nothing I mean, you get like a couple a, yeah a power couple pages in there yeah, yeah, but i was sure. like what that yeah. is crazy it's really you know a great financial market to be yeah. exploited but um yeah you know i i have these long historical riffs and i think they're important you know with life insurance you have to understand how it worked in order to understand how someone could succeed in perpetuating so much fraud and when it comes to hydroelectric power in the south you know you need to know a little bit about the geology of the region and the natural landscape in order to understand what happened and obviously anytime you're looking at a crime like this where the racial dynamics are so pronounced you you need to be thinking about the Jim Crow South and about the history of slavery in the region and so I really feel like you've always got to be you know looking over your shoulder with a story like this and I think you know some writers would have kind of put themselves in the book and it would have been the kind of gumshoe Nancy Drew like follow Casey Sepp as she goes to the Rockford courthouse <laughs> and digs around in Cooper County. There's a good County picture or, of you that's your press photo I think in the New York Times review where you're like standing in front of some like boards that are kind of like yeah, a conspiracy totally. theory right. exactly my conspiracy that's, that's a, yeah, yeah. that would be a great uh, press photo for the like Nancy Drew version there of this you go book. Yeah. And, and that's not the version I wanted to write so you know even though all of this reporting took place over the last couple of years I, I try as best I can to really keep readers in the chronological movements of the book. So when we're in the 1920s Alabama, that's where we are, and and I'm not forecasting. And when we're sitting with Harper Lee in the 1950s when she first moves to New York, um, we're sitting with her, and that's where we are. And in the 70s when we're learning about these criminal and civil trials that make up the true crime story, or even the 60s with the kind of political history of Alabama, I really wanted it to feel contemporary and gripping and not to feel like the past. So in that sense, I had to kind of forfeit the perspective of my experience reporting it. And I show up on kind of one page of the book, the very last page in the epilogue, because I felt the need to explain one kind of source question or material history question. But otherwise, the writer we're following around and the writer whose process and perspective we really inhabit is Harper Lee's. And that felt deliberate to me because, you know, she is far more interesting than I am. I thought it would be confusing to try and kind of ping between her perspective and mine. And the book also, I hope for readers, has this kind of elegant 
chronology where we really do just sit with the reverend from 1925 until 1977 when he was gunned down at the funeral of his last victim. And then we sit um, in kind of two concentrated years with the attorney who had represented him and then represented the vigilante who murdered him. And then immediately the baton handoff is to Harper Lee, who's come to this town to write a book about it all. And as you say, we then follow her forward until um, her death in 2016. So to me, the kind of through line isn't Casey Sepp, but really the kind of inevitable sweep of history in, in a place. That structure you just described, which is first this story, then this story. When I heard the premise for this book, my extremely naive assumption, because I've read a few narratives where there's two narratives in a book, is uh, I think The Devil in the White City is the most yeah, famous yeah, sure, one, sure. where it's about the Chicago World, book, World's right. Fair and a series of serial killings, and he's cutting back and forth between the two of them, which is its own kind of excitement and gives you like a lot of narrative chances to sort of like show echoes and strange things. And you deprive yourself of a lot of those tools (laughs) insofar as Harper Lee, I don't think even appears until like the 100th page of the book. (laughs) God bless you if you're in it for Harper Lee. She emerges and disappears as she was wont to do. Yeah, she doesn't show up for quite a while. But tell me about the history of how you put this together, bringing this to an editor. Like, what did other people think it should be like? Sure. I mean, you brought up Eric Larson's book, and I often think of Lost City of Z, the David Grant. Another and, one. Um, two master stylists. And, you know, I, I admire them greatly, but they're better writers than I am, and they can kind of juggle or braid or whatever metaphor you want to reach for. And it's not quite how my mind works. And it's also the case that, you know, my book is kind of structured around stories, but also characters, and also kind of three disparate ways of making sense of the world. So the reverend is this kind of hyper-religious perspective and his lawyer had a tremendous political career. So we're looking at kind of political forces. And then when we get to Harper Lee, it's this deliberately literary look at the world and how storytelling kind of shapes our perspective. And those felt, you know, look, these characters intersect with one another. Of course, that's why they're in the book together. They do meet at a certain moment, but it's very brief. And I felt like if I tried to braid their stories, it would erase some of the differences and it would really just diminish some of the friction between their lives. And, you know, these are three people born in three different small towns in Alabama, Wadley and Kellington and Monroeville, and yet their lives could not be more different. And, you know, you look at someone like the Reverend who served in the military, served in the army, but despite his, you know, distinguished service record, he, um, you know, he won a couple medals, but he never rose beyond kind of an engineering assistant. And then you look at someone like his lawyer who was immediately, you know, put into the JAG Corps and had a tremendous, you know, career as a lawyer that was partly facilitated by army training and experience at trial lawyering. And then you take Harper Lee. She's a woman of means. She studied abroad at Oxford. She was able to move to New York to pursue a creative life. And if you try and make those lives seem more similar than they are, you really deprive folks of the chance to think about the kind of larger forces that were operating on their lives and the varying degree of opportunity they had. So I wanted them to be distinct. Um, That chronology was also kind of obvious to me. So the truth is I, I wrote the book exactly as I pitched it. And I said, this is this is going to be a tripartite book and there's going to be a section about the reverend and there's going to be a section about the lawyer and there's going to be a section about the writer and um, I think there was a little bit of skepticism from some of the um, folks I talked to about it early on just because 
you know, that they might need to be more integrated. Um, but, you know, these are three incredibly dynamic characters. And the truth is, like, they stand alone. And if you had tried to braid them, you would have lost um, some of the internal suspense of each section. So, you know, the first part of the book is the kind of most true crimey part. And you're really trying to figure out who all is going to turn up dead and how much money the reverend's going to make and is he going to get caught. And, you know, then it takes a turn for the kind of political history and courtroom drama. And that has its own suspense. And with Harper Lee, you know, I think that well, one of the things that was most surprising to me is how much suspense there can be around writer's block and will she find her way through it and you know I would have thought it was gonna be like paint drying but I'm um, actually by letting her section stand alone and by letting readers know so much about the story she was trying to write we actually are kind of in her head and able to make judgments about what she was doing or what she might have done or how we would structure the book. And so I, I hope that it's satisfying. You know, if you're someone who loves true crime, I hope it doesn't feel like, ugh, my wonderful true crime book turned out to be a literary biography. I hope instead you think, oh, this is so interesting. I now have more information and tools for assessing the decisions that other true crime writers are making. Is there a history? I was trying to think of uh, comparable versions of people who've written works that are about other works that never came out were lost uh, to time yeah. destroyed a, yeah, in time yeah. like, there's a great book about lost books and, oh really you know I, I don't know that the reverend which is what Harper Lee was going to call this true yeah. crime book um, falls into that category although of course it's lost in the sense that we can't read it but some people would say that's because she didn't finish it you know one of the real mysteries of my book and I'm not being coy I try and give you as much information as I could gather from reliable sources but there are some people who think that this was a tremendously dark period of her life and she um, was struggling with drinking and depression and the same writer's block that had haunted her career for most of the 60s and most of the 70s so she wasn't able to write more than a few pages um, but you know that's one poll of opinion and information and the other is she wrote the whole thing and chose not to publish it you know the publisher thought it was the racial politics were too scandalous or she was worried about being sued by someone in the book or she was worried about the reverend's living accomplice so there's like real polls of speculation so lost book might not be the right category for the reverend but um the bigger question is how on earth do we have patience for someone not finishing something and that's a kind of interesting emotional posture for me and i thought a lot about it and you might think that writer's block is the only kind of example of that in the book but it seems to me like one thing these sections all have in common is that is the experience of a lot of investigators around crime so that's unfinished it's unsolved like that is a whole category of exploration around crime and even when you figure out who did something you may never know why and the other kind of heartbreaking unfinished story in the book to me is liberalism in the south you know i was i sold this book before the 2016 election but i Spent a lot of time down in Alabama um, after President Trump was elected and inaugurated and started serving. And, um, you know, I was down there during the election of Doug Jones. And it's very interesting, you know, because of Tom Radney's story, because of this lawyer who was a Kennedy liberal in the Wallace years, um, interviewing people who knew him and getting to know his family, I actually got to know a lot of liberal people in Alabama who are still trying to fulfill the legacy of civil rights and equality and justice. And, you know, that's when I realized it's not just the writer's block portion. There is a lot of unfinished work in the world. I remember you reporting for The New Yorker around the launch of Go Set a Watchman. 
and I may be getting one or two details wrong here, but I remember that there's some sort of a museum in town and that the mm. Lee family at some point has asked them to like um, stop selling a like <laughs> To Kill a Mockingbird themed cookbook. Yeah, yeah. And Calpurnia's cookbook, named for the African American <laughs> maid of the Finch family. Yeah, totally. And the overall thrust of that story, I would say, is that the lawyer who was currently representing Harper Lee was growing increasingly litigious yeah. and financially ambitious with the estate. This is your first book. Mm hmm. Did that give you any pause? Like, <laughs> and not just that, but also like um, that there had, was all sorts of like prior conflicts, both legal and yeah, emotional sure, and interpersonal. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. Um, not often facing folks writing literary biographies, but certainly facing folks digging into true crime stories yes. and. You know, I think litigiousness is one kind of danger, but the real truth is, you know, it's just such an emotionally tricky genre. And, you know, each section of this book was tricky for different reasons. And I could promise nothing except accuracy and fidelity to the truth to all of the families involved and all of the parties involved. And not that that ever has spared anyone a lawsuit. It hasn't. You know, I'm not naive. But, um, but my intentions were yes, good. Yes, exactly. You know, my intentions were good. But um, no, that's a kind of sober response, which is just to say that, you know, it's hard when you're writing about real people and... Um, everyone has an idea of himself or herself in the world. And, you know, the reporter is in the position of, you know, taking photographs when everyone wants a self-portrait and people trust you with their stories and they have an idea about what you'll write. And so I feel that responsibility no matter what I'm doing. But in the case of true crime, you're often meeting people at a dark point in their life story or um, at a moment of deep pain and unrest and violence. And, and that can be on both sides. You know, this book has a vigilante and um, that vigilante was found not guilty. Again, a spoiler alert by reason of insanity, but he does not identify as insane. So even for him to talk about his role in this um, story is different than the way lawyers or cops would talk about it. And all of that on top of the kind of tremendously emotionally fraught way that people love Harper Lee's work and have an idea about who she was as a writer. And they don't want to hear that, you know, she struggled with anything. So, yeah, you're managing a lot of expectations and fears and potential litigation, I guess. Um, one example of that was this letter Harper Lee is writing. It's actually writing to Gregory Peck. And these are some of my favorite letters in the book. I, I found he had donated these letters to the Oscar library and no one had gone and looked them up. And one of them, she just says, you know, she's talking about the varying expectations on her when she's working on her book. And Harper Lee had already written To Kill a Mockingbird. So boy, did she have expectations on her. And she says, you know, my publisher wants gore and autopsies. My agent wants a bestseller. And I just want to feel like I haven't defrauded the reader. And you think, yeah, that's where I sit too, right? Like, and I didn't even write Mockingbird before I started, but you're like, yeah, those are the, you know, I want to meet all these expectations. I want it to be a page turner. I want it to be a beautiful literary object. I want it to sell. I want it to, you know, do all of these things. But I also just at the end of the day want to feel like I've honored this commitment between writer and reader and writer and source. And those are sometimes in conflict. But this other letter she wrote to Gregory Peck, she just says like, I'm about to, you know, I'm I'm worried I'm going to be sued and lose my drawers over this book. And yeah, you know, every so often you are just like <laughs> the number of litigious parties in this book and everything you read you know everybody's always bringing lawsuits and they're suing one another and so yeah I mean I thought about it 
That's all I can say. I thought about it. Yeah. Tell me uh, what path as a writer led you to the point where you um, wrote this book. When did you get in? What was your first writing gig? My first writing gig? I mean, I loved literature as a kid. And I would say that love kind of actually started in the church. And I think I had an atypical experience for the cohort I'm in now, which is to say the kind of earliest book group I was ever a part of was church. And I grew up around farmers and nurses and teachers and um, working class folks. And yet they gathered once a week to talk about a book. It was the same book every week. It was the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, but they gathered together and someone sat up and interpreted it. And, um, you know, there was this collective process of reading and thinking and sometimes writing about it. And that was very formative for me. And I, you know, got to do some, you know, early Bible study and that was textual criticism as far as I'm concerned. And it led me to be interested in metaphor and parable and my pastor growing up was actually one of the most educated people I knew. You know, he read Greek, he read German, I grew up Lutheran. And so I came to writing, I feel like partly through that kind of religious community. And then when I was in high school, I got to write some for the local newspaper. And then when I was in college, I really had the chance to kind of put that appetite for literature to work. And I think before that, I must have just thought all writers were dead, like they were Dickens or, you know, all of that other generation of Whitman or something. It hadn't really occurred to me that, of course, there were living writers and you might even get paid to do it. (laughs) Um, And so I wrote for the college newspaper and the college literary magazine. And it's actually very lucky there was a little fellowship to employ current undergraduates to write for the alumni magazine. And so that was, I guess, close to long form. And um, more than that, I just had, you know, they had these top-notch copy editors and editors who would talk to you about your ideas. And it was equivalent of having to like pitch and come up with something good and talk through it and get a read back and that kind of thing. I feel like that's like a nice thing, both for the students and for the people who get profiled by the college magazine. Oh, totally. Because that was like, like I yeah. bought myself like five years of my parents not thinking I was a failure because like the Wesleyan alumni magazine like mentioned long form once. Oh gosh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice. Yeah, like, it's like a family oh, newsletter. We've been in yeah. a ma- I've been in a magazine. Yeah, yeah. Before. it's a way to keep in touch. Um, actually, I died. One of the funniest things in in the course of reporting the book um, that came out was one of Harper Lee's first clips. So she wrote for the college newspaper and humor magazine, actually. She's a tremendously funny and witty individual. But when she went with Capote out to Kansas to do the reporting for In Cold Blood, um, when they came back, you know, he was busy. He was under contract with The New Yorker to turn that into a um, series of articles. And that's the book that became In Cold Blood. But she agreed to write this little profile for him. And it was for the alumni magazine of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. <laughs> it's called The Grapevines. It was like, you know, the Wesleyan Student News. She was like profiling agent Alvin Dewey, the lead KBI agent. I bet that magazine's worked for the FBI. Good. <laughs> I've looked at a few issues now. And yeah, I mean, it's sort of like alumni notes, sort of like, a, you know, autopsy compendium and, you know, a lot of weird retirement and, you know, vacation news. But yeah, so everybody's collecting clips at some point in their career, even Harper Lee. But yeah, so I started there and then did other things after college. And then I was freelancing and, you know, I wrote 
I wrote for places like the Pacific Standard and, you know, I did some book reviews for the Boston Globe and the New York Times. And then I was mostly writing for the New Yorker's website. And um, this book grew out of some reporting I had done for them. And Was it their idea for you to go to um, write about Harper Lee or yours? So I had been in touch. Um, my editor there had just left and someone new had taken over Page Turner. And I think we had talked about something. So, you know, this announcement in 2015 was shocking. You know, Harper Lee was publishing a new book for 50 years. This woman had said she was never going to write again. And here was this book. And it was really soon after her older sister, who had been kind of her caretaker and manager, had died. And so I think there was talk of me doing like an armchair piece. And then I said, well, what if I wanted to do something reported? Because I wanted to see Monroeville. And I thought, you know, like, look, there's all this rumor, there's all this innuendo. And so I took a few days for the first piece I wrote, maybe in a week, I turned around kind of a like 2,500 word piece. And that just sort of beat the bounds of the original story, which is where did this manuscript come from? Who's making decisions about Harper Lee's life? What do people in town think and feel and have to say about all this? And then I wrote another article about the Maxwell case. And, um, you know, sometimes you write things for yourself. And the last line of that Maxwell case story said, you know, it was about this family. I'm the lawyer in the book. His family was trying to get back some of his materials. And the last line of that piece said, you know, the Radney family is sanguine. If Harper Lee didn't write this book, someone else will. It was like, why not me? Like, <laughs> I'm available. I yeah, I'm available and I like Alabama and I'd never been there, but I thought it was really great. And, you know, I felt like the more and more I dug around that case, there were just people alive who knew things about it. And more people had met her while she was in town than, you know, seemed to have been known. And Alabama's not great for sunshine laws, but there were some autopsies in court records. What and, are sunshine laws? Uh, you know, like FOIA, like how, oh, okay. you know, how easily can you get what should be publicly available information? Um, so, you know, I went looking for original civil and criminal records and autopsies and transcripts and things, death certificates, birth certificates, that kind of thing. And, you know, every one of those documents gives you, you know, a few more names and you go and see, are they alive or is their great nephew alive or is their next door neighbor who once lived near them alive? And there were just more and more people alive who could talk about it and um, who were willing to share information about her. And so, yeah, so this grew out of freelance reporting. And, you know, I had been writing, but also a lot of book reviewing. And I think the thing that... um people don't talk about much with a book, but that was certainly true in my experience and I think is true of some of the books I most admire is, you know, a book is made from other books. A lot of these different sections of the book are built from, you know, incredible research and scholarship and reporting that other folks had done. And the trick is marrying, you know, kind of your own reporting with, you know, what would take a lifetime to do, which is like learn the geology of the Tallapoosa River or I obviously can't go back in time and interview sharecroppers from the 1920s or 30s, but I could go and read Theodore Rosengarten on Nate Shaw, and I could go and read James Agee on sharecroppers across the state. And, you know, those are some of the best bits of the book. And that's where, you know, it's research, not reporting, that can give a book depth and, and meaning. Was it difficult, like, after you've, like, opened up the floodgates of that research and you're like got the entire history of life insurance and like Alabama geology in your head to say like I only have got like a couple sentences for you sorry like how do you decide like what's germane to this story and not in your own head yeah I mean I think that to some extent you're like always kind of boiling down to the essence of something and you know you're titrating 
very small amounts of what you've learned. And I think the real trick is to just realize like, you don't prove your research or your knowledge or your reporting with a kind of one-to-one correspondence. So it doesn't matter that you've spent, you know, there are people in this book where, you know, I interviewed them 15 or 20 times and you may never even use their name in the book, like they're in the notes. And, you know, you don't prove it by, you know, quoting them 15 times or by quoting 10,000 of the words they told you. You prove it by the deep knowledge that you only get from that level of interaction. And same thing for something like the geology of the Tallapoosa. I think that at the end of the day, I read like maybe five books on Lake Martin and the Tallapoosa and the Alabama River, and then one tremendous book on just the rivers of Alabama. And, you know, it's a paragraph. Now, I love that paragraph, and I think that it sets up the kind of emotional tone of the book about violence and disappearance and how powerful people remake the world in ways they desire. But it's not like I shared every glorious fact I learned. Um, So I don't know that you can know before you read it all you know you just it it takes time and there's no shortcut for it so you can read and read and read and read and not know what you're looking for and then suddenly learn that when lake martin was flooded you know when the Tallapoosa was dammed and the reservoir was flooded watermelon farmers saw their watermelons float to the surface and i didn't know the fact i would need to convey that kind of slow filling of the reservoir but boy when i read that i was like that's it that is what shows people how a landscape that was lovingly tended and farmed was just changed slowly but surely. What was it like writing this book in the midst of a true crime boom as Ugh, entertainment? Yeah, was that sure. in your mind at all? Or were you like um, living in Alabama with a flip phone? Oh, gosh. It? I mean, <laughs> you will appreciate. So here we are, long form. Um at some point when I was down there, I have a really good friend who's just a total bird dog for all things like true crime. And I think she texted me or maybe she emailed me and she said, oh my gosh, did you hear Serial is going to be doing their next season about a small town murder in Alabama? And I was like, <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? And I sat there and like, I thought- Start like looking around Well, literally I was like, how have none of my sources mentioned that Sarah Koenig is calling or like someone from NPR has gotten in touch and um, turned out to be over in Bibb County? Yeah. And, you know, I did have the like band-aid moment of like, will I ever be able to listen to this excellent podcast because I've been traumatized by the fear that it might have been my story. Um, So yeah, I mean, it's certainly a great time to be thinking about this kind of narrative nonfiction. And I think that people are writing really smartly about race and gender in the genre now too. So I was really happy to be reading a lot of that and digesting it. But I also felt the need to kind of stay in my chronology of the book. So I was also reading a lot like, you know, what was coming out in the 70s when Harper Lee was setting down to try and write her book. And, you know, it was an interesting time then, too, not just because the kind of TV space was expanding and like true crime TV and these like, you know, kind of midday specials were booming. Um, It's also just kind of an interesting experimental moment. So Capote's book had come out in 65, but or come out in the New Yorker then in 66, then come out in book form. But right around the time Harper Lee was working on The Reverend, you know, you had James Baldwin writing about the Atlanta child murders, doing a very smart kind of sociocultural critique. And Kate Millett wrote a really weird book about the Sylvia Likens case that was like partly, you know, inhabiting her perspective. And it was like this first person, like experiential book. And, you know, all of that was going on. And here's like conservative curmudgeonly Harper Lee saying like, no, no, 
I do not like the new journalism. I want straight journalism with old-fashioned facts. And it was interesting to kind of sit with her perspective and think about what she was trying to do and what she objected to and really look at the history of that genre. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it's an interesting time for kind of meta-true crime narratives and for people to be thinking deliberately about the kinds of cases that are chosen for these stories and the kinds of cases that capture the public imagination and the kind of discrepancies between author and subject. And I have to think that she was mindful of all that. And it is, in that sense, very interesting the case she chose. It's so different from the one Capote chose for In Cold Blood. Well, I was going to say, like, what you described about Harper Lee and sort of like, you know, stick to the facts. Some of that mm-hmm. has been called into question about In Cold Blood. Yeah. And, and the truth of the matter is there's a lot of great scholarship on this. But it is true that in the last few years, since additional documents have been made available to the public and even to some extent the letters of Truman Capote where he's writing to sources to kind of ask them to supply more details and you know he says kind of candidly if they won't he can just invent them and you know people in the book talked about it after the fact and you know that's everyone from it's a really dramatic scene at the end of In Cold Blood when Agent Dewey is visiting the graves of the clutters with a friend of the clutter girls and that is not a scene Capote witnessed or that took place it's just a convenient end to the book and so you know small things and big things and and I don't just mean you know like trivial facts like I mentioned some of these in the book but you know the price that the clutter girl's horse sold for you know yeah, there, are, yeah. there are facts that you know any writer can get wrong even when attempting to get them right and they're just misreported or you know you just don't correct it in the page proofs or whatever but Harper Lee objected to kind of deep emotional decisions he made and, you know, things like that scene at the end, which were essentially fabrications for narrative, which served the narrative purpose of the book, but were not nonfiction. And she didn't air those grievances publicly, but she maintained friendships with some of the folks in Kansas who had been sources. And she maintained a friendship with Capote's fact checker, The New Yorker. And so I draw on some of the letters she wrote those folks and, and report some of her objections to In Cold Blood. And so she was really there for this reporting. You know, she went with him in 1959 when he first went to report the story. And I think some people know that, but she actually went back with him several times after that. And she conducted interviews on her own. And, you know, she amassed over 100 pages of reporting notes for him. And she was there for the trial of Hickok and Smith. And she was there when Capote interviewed them. And so she had a lot of firsthand experience and a lot of personal perspective on the events and on the characters and was that common then to bring another person along to your <laughs> interviews i mean Gosh, sh- i mean i don't know how common it I was i feel like but... all the writers who, who read that are gonna be like whoa budgets must have been crazy yeah, i mean i can tell you he paid her nine hundred dollars in 1959 which was almost as much as she made on the advance for to kill a mockingbird so he at least compensated her well in in terms of finances and covered expenses too but he um was not as generous with the credit I think some people might know when George Plimpton was interviewing him for the New York Times about the book, you know, the quote nonfiction novel, which was a, a term Harperly abhorred, you know, these completely, you know, diametrically opposed terms. Either it was nonfiction or it was a novel. She yeah. did not believe there was such a thing as a nonfiction novel, but here was Capote going around saying he invented this genre and here it was. And it's like he forgot all about, you know, John Hershey and these people, but quote nonfiction novel. He told George Plimpton in that kind of pre-publicity interview that Harper Lee had been his assistant researchist, um, which I do not believe was a common term at the time. And <laughs> certainly budgets do not allow for it today. It's We're a lucky. weird demotion from just research. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that that was the term he 
came up with. But um, I don't know how common it was, but he was certainly lucky to have done it because truly, you know, even some of the people who are alive today say they would never have talked to Capote. He was strange and aloof and odd and did not seem kind. And, and they were actually persuaded to talk by her. She was warm and empathetic and um, down to earth, and they felt that she was trustworthy and that she understood them and that their stories would be taken seriously and tended to and treated well. And um, so he needed her. She was really an, an asset for the book. But all of that is to say she had all of this information and evidence from which to evaluate the decisions he made in his book. And she did not approve of a lot of the decisions he made. And um, she was prescient. I mean, now this conversation has caught up to it. And we're asking questions about, you know, where the sourcing came from and how he could have known certain things. And even the deep structural decisions about heroes and villains and compassion and sympathy. And it's not that that book is any less of a masterpiece. Of course, it is still beautifully written and aesthetically just a, a triumph. Um but, you know, ethically, I think it's cause for conversation, not celebration. And there's a lot to learn from the decisions he made. And I was very grateful. You know, I didn't have to seem like a schoolmarm in my book because I could just quote her. <laughs> and, you know, I could just have her be the heavy on some of these issues yeah. and, you know, just, you know, complain and grouse about how people just invented things. And, you know, the Reverend and Harper Lee were subject to the same kind of gossip and rumor and innuendo. And, you know, people who had met Harper Lee for all of like two minutes pretended to be your best friend. And so I think she might have, you know, part of her upset with, you know, the way press and publicity and media worked was she had been misquoted and misrepresented and, you know, had her life represented in national newspapers and magazines, like in ways she felt were not accurate. And I think that's part of the reason she, aside from a kind of genuine conservatism in her personality, I think that's one of the reasons she was so deliberate about this project, the Reverend, and so insistent on her scrupulousness and her appetite for accuracy. Yeah, I mean, it forms a interesting foil for In Cold Blood, where you go in think to, to your book thinking, okay, one of these is a success and one of them's a failure. One of them's the most successful true crime narrative of all time, and one of them barely even exists or doesn't exist. And part of the journey for me as a reader was kind of being like, hey, maybe it was kind of good she didn't write. Like, it's mm. it's okay for people to do things unpublicly and, and that whole lives can kind of, like, be subsumed into these, like, I guess they're almost like higher religious ideals. Like, that's the only kinds of people that I sort of identify with that kind of monastic. You've written about nuns. I guess this is kind of a theme. For you. <laughs> <laughs> written about nuns. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So you're referencing this idea that Harper Lee had about, she had this kind of ancient notion of vocation, and she felt that writers had this higher calling and that you had to devote your life to it and that probably you had to be miserable and you had to suffer for it and that if the work were going to be good, it came through great suffering on the part of the artists. And it's not at all what I believe, and, and I think it's a little silly, and there are obviously a lot of functional, happy writers, and you don't have to be you know, you don't have to have an addiction and you don't have to be rude to your family and you can be a good parent and a good, you know, member of the community and still write. But she found herself sort of enamored with that idea. And it was self-reinforcing, you know, that that meant if she was going to write, she had to be miserable. And if she wasn't miserable, she couldn't write. And that is this awful pattern she got into after To Kill a Mockingbird. She went through these periods where she could barely write a page a day. And she liked to quote this line from Jean Fowler about how you should sit down to your typewriter and wait until your forehead bled, 
which is just, you know, I thought it was put on or performative. And I just thought, oh, how could anyone be so miserable? And, you know, is writer's block even a real thing? And it turns out, of course it is. And there are a lot of people like Harper Lee. And there are a lot of people who, um, in the privacy of their, you know, office or writer's room or cubicle, just really suffer and struggle. And it's an authentically miserable vocation for them. And it's actually one of the hardest things for me to kind of figure out how to write about in the book, because I wanted to take it seriously. And I wanted it to be realistic, but it's not my experience as a writer. So I found it a little hard to do. And I admire the monastics. And I think that monasticism is a very interesting way of being in the world. And I just I'm not called to it, and I'm not called to it. Even, you know, even as a writer, I just what kind I, of a writer are you? Like, um, oh as gosh, I mean, it's like happy-go-lucky. Are you kidding me? I really? like, I feel so blessed to get to do it, and you know, I can't believe we get paid to do it, and I'm pretty joyful, and I I like the reporting, and I I like the writing, and I can get a little fussy with revisions, like you know, second or third draft. I feel like, oh, I just want to be done. I've learned everything I can, and I thrive on the kind of you know, energy of reporting and mystery and information. And I, I don't like suspense except for when I'm kind of solving puzzles and figuring things out. But um, yeah, I just sit down happily and I can, you know, write anywhere I am and on a train, on a plane, in a bus station, you know, in the backyard, at the picnic table, in the hammock. And, you know, Harper Lee, I think, was in the category of, you know, like long silences and dark spaces and solitary thoughts. And, you know, I take that seriously and I, I want to do beautiful and interesting work. And obviously, sometimes that does take removing yourself from social situations. And, you know, if you're writing about the 1970s, as I did in this book, sometimes stepping away from your contemporary life to really sit and try and figure out what that time was like or what this other person was like. But no, I love my friends and family and feel very grounded in the kind of world around me in a way that um, the writing is not a place I go or a kind of miserable space. What like what yeah. was that thing? I mean, I guess like the male equivalent would be like a Hemingway kind of figure, but like this idea of like self-destructing through art is that just a bunch of people who had depression? Is it generational? Like, yeah, what you, like, what sure. Like, is it melancholy but misdiagnosed well, yeah. or something? Yeah. Uh, yeah, or like, I guess it's receding from the world, I believe, or it's at least yeah. receding from the pop cultural narrative of writing, but it once right. was the dominant mold of being a successful writer. And I just wonder whether it's a cultural phenomenon. Is it a biological phenomenon? Sure. Right. People have written very smart things on creativity and madness or creativity and addiction. And I don't want to make light of either of those because I think they're real legitimate struggles for a lot of people. But um, there's this other category where you're right. It's a kind of appetite for suffering in the sense that authenticity comes from that. And yeah, I mean, I should say I don't really believe in the withdrawal, but I'm also fascinated. You know, you're talking about I wrote about nuns and I'm you know, interested in the life of someone like Thomas Merton or Simon Stylettes and these people who withdraw from society for long periods and or Julian of Norwich. I think they have things to teach us. It's not my calling. I don't think I would be very happy in a monastic cell for decades on end or standing on a pillar in the desert. But um, I think they have things to teach us. And so I don't want to be dismissive of the Harper Lee types. I think, you know, it takes all kinds in the world and it takes some writers who, you know, love a good cocktail party and it takes some who love a good cubicle and everything in between. So I don't mean to be prescriptive and suggest that some of those suffering writers can also do good work. Um, they do. I just hope that 
it's what they want. You know, if you are alone, I hope you want to be alone and not that the loneliness feels somehow the price of getting to write. And, you know, I think that's a way that the book is very heartbreaking in some parts of the heart release sections because I found her life to be quite sad. But I also think it's not all that. And, um, you know, she really did have this incredible life of the mind. And I don't know how much she would have self-identified with misery or melancholy, even though she seems to have been melancholic and miserable because, in fact, she was reading great works of literature. She was going to the Met and the Frick and, you know, she was making her way around Manhattan and I think would have said, you know, that is in some ways all we can hope for, to be engaged and um, to be challenged by beautiful works of art. And I think probably she would have been one of the first to say that, you know, what more is there in life? Where do you go from here? What's next for you? Or what what's exciting to you about your next project? Or Gosh, well, I, I really loved Bookland and I, I liked getting to write, you know, I'm kind of promiscuous when it comes to genre. And so I, I like the idea that a book is big enough to accommodate a lot of different things. And, you know, this one was true crime and political writing and literary biography and a little bit of natural history, too. And so I liked that. And I would like to do it again and um, have my eye on another story that you know, I think you could call it a shipwreck or you could call it a theft. So I think it's a little bit of true crime too. And it's older, it's like 16th century. So there'll be fewer people to track down and talk to about it. Um, but it'll keep me coming and going to the South. And um, You had me, a, you could call it a shipwreck or theft. My mind had to go over that phrase several times. Oh uh, yeah, there I, you I was, go. Like, yeah, it depends yeah. on which side of the story you're on. Um, so I would love to write another book. It's so funny for the last four years, Basically, so I've been working on this book since 2015, and everybody I interviewed would say, like, whoa, how are you going to write the book if Harper Lee couldn't? And instantly, the moment it was published, that turned into, are you going to write another book or are you going to be a one-hit wonder? Um, so I love how quickly expectations morph and evolve. But um, no, I would love to write another book, and I'm on deadline for, actually blew a deadline for a book review. So, you know, if you're my editor and you're listening, you know, be patient. I am finishing <laughs> it up. Um, so yeah, you know, some long-form stuff and hopefully book two sooner rather than later. Well, thank you so much for this interview. Thanks so much. That was the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer. Our intern is Louisa Garbowit. We are brought to you by incredible sponsors like MailChimp and Pit Writers. Thanks to them. If you'd like to sponsor the show, it's sponsor at longform.org. Get in touch. We can send you some rates. We'd really appreciate it. If you want to get in touch about anything, you can podcast at longform.org. We love requests for guests. In fact, actually, I think this episode originally came about because of one. So uh, thanks to everyone who's written in. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. 
Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.